Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. I'm feeling nervous to tell you stories, but I need to tell you (laughs) a couple of them. I was about 17 years old, and I was working in an outreach program for homeless people in Oklahoma City. And one of the homeless men there was named Patrick, and Patrick was a professed Satan worshiper. Some of you do call portering, and I'll just tell you my opinion from my experience in that field. I think two-thirds of the people or more that tell us that they're Satan worshipers are just kidding. I think they're just doing it to laugh at us after we leave. And you shouldn't take that so seriously as you might think you are inclined to take it, typically, when it happens at the door. But I talked to Patrick week after week after week after week, and I don't think that he was making it up. It wasn't a silly thing to him. So if someone worships Satan, wouldn't you want to know why they would do such a, such a silly thing? I asked him, and he explained it to me. It was quite logical. In India, there are people who walk on hot coals, and their feet don't even get they don't get burned, they don't even get warm. And Satan has mastered the art, as he explained to Patrick, or a demon did, of controlling flame. And those who serve him willingly and openly and without any problems here on earth will, will not have any problems in hell. They'll be protected. And I found it devolving on myself to explain to Patrick that the devil couldn't keep his end of that bargain. That he's not in charge of hell. And in fact, he can't even keep himself from burning when he gets there. And that made Patrick really, really, can you imagine how that, if you really thought, if you thought through the story, how that would just, it'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Isaiah 9 We're going to look at a verse, but I'm not going to tell you which verse yet, because I want to quiz you. In Bible prophecy, a woman represents a? A beast represents a? Water represents? What about a tail? That's what I thought. It might happen. Tails show up, right? You remember the locusts in Revelation 9, that they have stings in their tails, Do you remember in Revelation 12, there's a dragon, and with his tail, he gathers one-third of the stars. Remember that. Isaiah 9, look at verse 15. God, just before this, speaks about how he's going to cut off Israel, the head and the tail. Then he explains what those metaphors mean. Verse 15, the ancient and honorable, he is the head. And the prophet that teaches lies, he is the tail. In Revelation 9, when you read about that, the tail of the locust, that is Muhammad. Muhammad is the prophet that tells lies, that is the source of the problem that was caused by the Muslims there in Revelation chapter 9. This isn't meant to be a Bible said in Revelation, and I'm sorry if it started out that way, but... Follow me through for a minute. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. 
Revelation chapter 12 will launch us into our series this weekend. Revelation 12 and looking at verse 4. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And we can stop there. How was it that Satan caused a third of the angels to become demons? It was with lies. The angels were perfect, and they became wicked through lies. And I, the thought I want you to start with this evening that we're going to build on is that you don't have to inherit a wicked inheritance. You don't have to have rebellious genes. You don't need to have anything like a time clock that says when you get to age 13, you start to lose it. You don't need anything like that to create rebellion in you. Even if you were as perfect as Adam and Eve before the fall, there is something the devil is skilled at that tends to create rebellion, and that is lies. Lies, yeah, destroyed so many angels. What we're talking about this weekend is about the art of learning how to think. And when I say learning how to think, I mean learning how to think in such a way that the devil loses his ability to persuade you of his lies. And if the devil can't persuade you of his lies, the the ease that you will have in maintaining your consecration will just be incredibly increased. Let me say that a different way. It's much easier to submit to the Lord Jesus when you really understand correctly what is true. And to whatever extent the devil can trick us in regard to what is true, to just that extent it becomes harder to submit to the Lord Jesus. And so while the series in a way is prepared for young people, the fact of the matter is it's for everybody. I mean, in this sense, I really don't think that the reason young people become rebellious is because, I don't think it has anything to do with their being young. I don't think it has really anything to do with anything at all, except for that there comes a point in life when we have to start thinking for ourselves. And when that point comes, the devil has an advantage that he's been preparing a long time to trick us. And he gets us. And I think when we get older, all that really happens typically for most people is that the devil ends up becoming more subtle in his work. And so the tricks don't show up in such rebellious behaviors, but they do create the same kind of rebellious thoughts. This is a long introduction, and we need to get moving if we're going to get through even our first step. So tonight we're going to look at 10 different ways that the devil tricks people Tomorrow during Sabbath school, we're going to look at 10 to 15 more ways that the devil tricks people. I'm going to be moving through these rapidly. If you want to get notes on them and can't keep up, at BibleDoc.org, that's B-I-B-L-E-D-O-C dot O-R-G, 
you can find an article called Tricks of the Devil. And it would be just a great substitute for taking notes, except for that writing something down will help you remember. And so I recommend you take notes even if you didn't need to do it for any reason besides that. During the worship hour, the 11 o'clock service tomorrow, we'll be talking about how to form your own values. And here's what I'm aiming at there. I've been now in educational work for 19 years. I'm not old enough for that. You have to ask me about that sometime. But I have. Since 1991, I've been full-time teaching. And um, I've seen many young people who at some point had the same values as their parents and were spiritually inclined and who only two or three years later still were living a Christian life, as it were, going to church and doing mission activities, but whose values had just completely changed. And I'd like us to study during the worship hour tomorrow how to make your own values in such a way that you don't end up being rebellious against what God has said. There's an art to that, and we're going to study it. Then in the afternoon, we're going to talk about that very delicate time of life. I think for me it happened at age 11. For some people, 11, 12, 13, when you become disillusioned with your parents. I think parents shouldn't be too ashamed to admit that at some point they should expect their children to become disillusioned with them. I mean that at some point, at some age, children just believe and love their parents and believe everything they say and and that's just not appropriate for the long term, right? I don't see enough parents going, uh-huh, but it's not. It's not. The truth is you don't want your children just believing everything you say because you say it. But when children become disillusioned with their parents, that's a very, a very normal time for the devil to enter in with a special bag of tricks to create rebellion. And then in our last talk tomorrow afternoon, We'll be talking about what Ellen White calls diseases of the imagination. And I think you'll just be fascinated by how many of the, the normal ways that we think are diseases. I mean, if you think that you know someone who's ill and gets colds and fevers and flus quite often, when you understand the idea of the disease imagination, I think you'll find that a large percentage of us are just perpetually ill in the head. And that if we can understand the way the imagination is intended to work, it will save us a great deal of hassle. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, we're looking at chapter 2. Everything we've said so far has been introductory material. We're starting now. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're looking at verse 11. It says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. To whatever extent that verse is true in your experience, to just that extent, this series isn't needed for you. But I think for a great majority of people, it isn't as true as it ought to be that we are not ignorant of his devices. Let's look at one of those devices right here in this passage. Look up to verse 7. 
You might remember from 1 Corinthians that there was a man who had an affair with someone in his immediate family. Maybe you wouldn't call it incest because there was no blood relation there. But Paul was very clear that this man needed to be disfellowshipped. And he was disfellowshipped. And that's what this chapter is about, 2 Corinthians 2, these few verses. Looking at verse 7. So that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him. That is the one who's been disfellowshipped from the church. And comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Paul didn't say that you should undo the discipline. But there are a couple normal tricks of the devil that are just illustrated in this story. One of those is the devil often often leads us to combine discipline with coldness. Coldness. I hope you can see by comparing verse 7 to verse 11 that that is one of his devices. That the devil knows that if he can lead us to combine our discipline with coldness, that it will really decrease, maybe destroy the chance of that discipline doing any good on the part of the person who's been disciplined. Is Paul saying don't discipline? Not at all. But the trick is when discipline is combined with coldness. So what did Paul say? This man that's been disciplined? Be sure that you show him how much you still love him. Be sure that you give him sufficient help and comfort because he could just be overwhelmed with those. How many of you had that feeling of what it's like to know that everyone looks down on you? The feeling that everyone looks down on you is demoralizing in the extreme. And that happens a lot with young people. Anyway, this is one of the tricks. And it's not one of the ten. It's just a way of introducing the fact that there are such things as tricks, that the Bible talks about them, that we shouldn't be ignorant of his devices. Once upon a time in a land far, far away, there lived a man named Martin Luther. And he wasn't in prison, but it was sort of like prison for him. Ellen White calls it the Wartburg he was in a little castle. While he was in the castle, he heard the strangest of rumors. There were three false prophets, and it turned into more than three, but it started out that way, that were going to Wittenberg. That was his hometown. According to Luther, he had always expected false prophets to come. And if I could put in a tidbit on the side, you ought to read Second Selected Messages, pages 1 through 100. If you do, you'll find out that God expects false prophets to come. And he gives us a great deal of information to know how to identify them. And you should read it. So here was Martin Luther. He heard about this, and he decided to go to Wittenberg and set this thing straight. He did go. And the wisdom that God gave him there is a rare type. When he got to Wittenberg, instead of getting all excited and attacking the false prophets with excitement, he recognized that the reason the false prophets were having such success was because the people were so excited. Ellen White uses the word excitable. And you know, when people are kind of like that, they don't think nearly as well. And so Ellen White describes how Luther preached six sermons that did not even allude to the false prophets, but they were calm, cool, 
collected biblical messages. And when the people were calmed down, their infatuation with the false prophets dissipated. Isn't that beautiful? The false prophets had a number of of strange ideas. Uh, They were recommending that you, for example, that the students drop out of school in Wittenberg. Wittenberg was a university. And and that the teachers stopped teaching. And in fact, one of the teachers did stop teaching. And he was the only person I know in Wittenberg that was a Sabbatarian at the time. That was Karlstadt. He stopped teaching. And so the false prophets had some effect. One of the strange doctrines they were teaching was that infant baptism doesn't count. That we need to, to really believe before we're baptized. And Martin Luther rejected the false prophets, and with the false prophets, he rejected the false teachings of the false prophets. And you know, his position on infant baptism largely came from that experience with the false prophets. I call it the baby and bathwater trick. I mean that the devil often sends sends something your way that you will recognize as bad, and he hitches to it something that is good. We're more familiar with the other trick. We're used to people talking about the thing that is good, and there's a little bit of arsenic. Now, I've heard the illustration like a thousand times, and we don't want to take the good thing because we'll get, but he uses this one too. He sends something that's bad, you'll recognize it as bad, and he'll try to connect some truth to it in such a way that you'll throw out the truth with the good. Did I say it backwards? With the bad. I'm so glad you're listening. That really is very gratifying to a teacher. (laughs) That is. Do you understand that trick? I don't think I need to illustrate it more, except the illustration of how it works in your own mind. It's very common for Satan to work through delivery methods so that suppose that he doesn't want you to believe the truth about some lifestyle issue, then he might have someone come and present the truth to you with rigor or meanness or cruelty or whatever. Do you see how easy it is to deceive you if all the devil has to do to trick you is have an ugly person tell you the truth? Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? We should not be that easily deluded. We're going to have to find some other way to evaluate what is right and what is wrong than the character of the person that tells it to us. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're looking at verses 1 and 2. Now, as touching things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. That is, it makes you proud. But charity builds up. That means, that's what edifies means. It builds up. Verse 2, And if any man thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. I'm going to say this thought as simply as I can manage to say it. The devil tries to trick people into thinking the gospel doesn't work for them. I've met so many who've told me that. 
And in fact, if you meet a young person who gives up on religion, in a large percentage of cases, this is the very trick that has been at the root of it. They've, it's not that they've decided they'd rather burn in hell. It's not that they've decided that heaven doesn't exist. It's not that they've decided that the pleasures of this earth are honestly worth more than living forever. Those are really hard sells, even for the devil. They've decided that the gospel just doesn't work for them. They can't make it. And since they can't make it, then why should they even try? Have any of you older people ever had a thought like that? Yeah, it's one of the most common. Do you see in 1 Corinthians 8, 2, the idea that if you think you understand something, you don't understand it as well as you ought to? And this is so true with something like the gospel. If it isn't working for you, in all, well, I'm 100% sure, but you'd have to spend research time to figure this out for yourself. I'm sure it's not you and it's not the gospel. It's because God wrote the gospel and God made you. And the idea of those two not fitting, it just isn't tenable. It's not sensible. But in my experience with people, it's because they don't really understand the gospel. Well, what if you've studied it for a long time? You haven't studied it long enough? I could go on with this much longer, but we have eight more to cover. And so I'm just going to say that the gospel doesn't work for me trick is, is influencing your mind. Remember that the real issue here is that you just don't understand. And if you really did understand how it could work, it would work for you if you would submit to it. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, and we're looking at 19. I'd like you to envision for a minute a corral, a very large corral, and imagine that there are, if, if it's sheep, you call them a flock. What do you call it if it's a bunch of horses? There's a herd of horses? Imagine there's a herd of horses in your large corral. And that one of those horses is by the fence and perpetually walks around the outside maybe of a two or 3,000 acre enclosure and is perpetually walking along the fence. Um, the other horses are in the middle and doing whatever horses do. I really don't know enough about horses to make this illustration very realistic. Uh, but doing whatever horses do to enjoy themselves. Okay. Can you see in the illustration I'm trying to paint in your mind that all of those horses have the very same boundaries in their life, but one of those horses feels the boundaries a great deal more than the others? This is a very normal trick of the devil to keep you at the edge of the boundaries in your life. And as long as you're at the edge, we're in what I would call gray areas. Like you know that scripture music is good, and you know that, oh, 
punk rock is bad. But don't you all know that as you begin to come towards the middle here, for all of us, there is some area where things get really muddled. Isn't that true? I think it's true for all of us, right? Somewhere there. I don't mean it's the same for all of us. It is a trick of the devil to keep us, our minds and experience and focus, in those muddled gray areas so that we're always chafing, as it were, at the bit. We're, we're pushing on the edges, and as long as that's where we are in our experience, we will feel the captivity, and the devil will tell us that we are, as it were, we don't have freedom. But how do you get freedom? Let's read this passage, Galatians 2.19. It says, for I through, what's it say? Through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. Said in other ways, when I come away from the fence and I choose my activities among those that are certainly wholesome, certainly best, there is a great variety of opportunities here where there's no troubles with my conscience, there's no problems. It's through obedience to the law that I become free from its condemning voice. And what a trick it is to allow ourselves to just always be right there on the edge. I guess all I'm saying is that if you're the horse on the edge, if you'll just come inland a little bit from that fence, you won't feel so much restriction as you do. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs chapter 26, and we're looking at verse 27. Proverbs chapter 26. And we're looking at verse 27. Whoso diggeth a pit shall fall therein, and he that rolleth a stone, it will return upon him. This idea is in the Bible more times than I thought it was before I started looking. Um, it's at least in four different books, this very same concept. It's the idea that the person who sets a, a trap for someone else ends up being hurt by that same trap himself. And I, I guess I'll just explain what I'm getting at. A common scenario is that a young person feels that his mom and or his dad or his grandparents or someone has been just pushing religion down. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That experience. And they're tired of it. They don't want it anymore. And this is when the devil brings in this trick. You get revenge on God for what a person has done. If you'll think it through, you'll realize it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it feels like that you are getting revenge on your parents, but your parents aren't the ones that made up the principles that you're rebelling against. And God isn't the one that was mean to you. And in fact, God hasn't even put any undue pressure on you. In fact, he's been always kind. 
it just doesn't make any sense at all to rebel against God because of the confused methods of parents. Now, the truth is, probably the parents are doing the very best they can. And it's, it might be too much to ask of maturing young people to think like that, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You can't assume that just because someone isn't, isn't helping you the right way that they aren't sincere, that they aren't trying to serve God. The fact of the matter is, most people don't really know what they're doing when they're trying to help the kids. They're doing their best. And you know what the other option is than doing their best? is to let them go. And that's worse. But for young people, this is the, the worst of this trick. So poor parents pushes too much the wrong way. Poor young person rebels against God. Well, it hurts the parents' feelings, and it hurts God's feelings, but it destroys the young person. And it just doesn't make any sense to destroy yourself as a way of getting back at someone else. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? It doesn't at all. And we want to think these things through. He who digs a pit will fall into it himself. That's the way it always works with rebellion. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 4, verse 34. Luke 4, and verse 34. This is a demon speaking. Luke 4, and verse 34. Saying, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. You don't find even the apostles typically giving that strong an affirmation of the divinity and messiahship of Jesus. It's the demon who says, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Keep that in mind and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, and we're looking at verse 16. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, listen carefully to this, these men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Can you fault that saying? And this did she many days. But Paul being grieved. Have you ever wondered why he would be grieved with that? Maybe it just makes simple sense to you, and I just want to use it as the illustration. This is a normal method of the devil. He did it with Jesus, and he did it with Paul. The devil likes to use shady characters and associate them with the truth. 
he tries to throw the truth into disrepute by association with shady characters. Why would the devil announce to everyone that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you ever wonder where the Pharisees got the idea that Jesus was in league with demons? Why would the devil like to announce that Paul was was showing the way of salvation? The devil loves to associate himself with the truth in such a way as to make the truth unpalatable. We're, I, I guess I'm just repeating something I said 14 minutes ago, but that's okay because we need to hear it. We're going to have to evaluate truth on the basis of the data, on the basis of the information. We won't be able to do it this way by looking at whether or not hypocrites are recommending it. It's the normal business of Satan to bring hypocrites into the church. And it looks to me like he's very, can you see in these passages, he's very gifted at getting even the worst type of people to say the best type of things. He can do it. Turn me in your Bibles to Acts 26. Acts chapter 26 And we're looking at verse 28. And Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. If you'll turn back just a page or two to 24, verse 25. Acts 24 and verse 25 You'll see where it says, And he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Felix trembled and answered, Go your way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. I'll call this the later trick. I've seen this thousands of times in call portering. I like using call porter illustrations, and I know some people in the audience call porter, so here it goes. I was deluded by this trick myself. I noticed that I would meet people regularly that would tell me that they wanted the books, but they would get them later. And I would leave them a happiness digest, and I think they'll read it. And then I had the bright idea. This is about 1999. I had 100,000 happiness digests printed up with my phone number in them and my web page. I wasn't wealthy. The school did this. And um, we distributed all 100,000 of those to people, like I described, people who said, we'll get something later, over the course of about six years. But it didn't take that long to be disillusioned with those people. I mean, after distributing the first 30,000 of them to people who said, we'll order it later, only three or four of them had ever contacted us to get more books. Now, I want to tell you, I, I think that the people that we give those Happiness Digests to are the upper crust of society in terms of integrity and spirituality. They're the better half. They gave money for those, typically. They, it's, they didn't just get it for free. It wasn't that they were lying to me. 
but it's that when the Spirit brings information into our field of vision, when the data is there and we know the right thing to do because we can see the picture, and then the Spirit is convicting us to do it, and we have the reasons, that is the very best time to make a decision. And if we don't make the decision when we have the most information there, it's not long before the information begins to fade in its clarity. And what was obviously the right thing to do just a few days ago now doesn't seem as obviously the right thing to do. And within a few weeks, it seems like it probably was a not the right thing to do. So that when is the time the devil could turn this trick on its head and turn it into a different type? I'm saying the best time to make a decision is when you have the most information on the table. And often that's when you're under conviction after hearing the information. And it's just dangerous to put it off even for a short time. The devil's other side of that trick, though, is with, to have a manipulator come to you and present a bunch of charismatic, maybe unverifiable information and get you to ask you to make a decision before you have time to research and see if it's true. There's a real difference between convicting Bible data and the testimonies of people who are healed from every disease under the sun by drinking such and such goo. <laughs> Do you follow what I'm communicating? So I, I'm not saying that this trick means that you should always make a decision right away when you're put under pressure to make a decision. That's not what I'm trying to communicate at all. What I said is that the best thing to make a decision is when you have the most information in front of you. And the trick of the devil is both ways. He hates information. It's either to get you to put off the decision until the information fades from your mind, or to get you to make a decision before you have time to research and see what the real information is. And either way, you're making a less informed decision than you ought to be making. It didn't work out for Felix. Turn with me in your Bibles to John 17. For those of you who are getting tired of listening to me drone, um, we're on point seven. And I'm going to review shortly when we get done, and it might stick with you. I don't consider, honestly, that I have any skills in preaching. I just think the Bible is a really quality book and that the data that's there can accomplish what needs to be done, which is why I would dare to get in front of you and talk. John 17, we're looking at verse 7. That's so not accurate. It's John 7, verse 17. All I had to do is look at it and realize that. John chapter 7 and verse 17. It says, if any man will do his will, he will know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. I'm going to testify to you of something I've observed that's incredible. Do you all realize I'm part of a church plant? My wife and I are, are planting a church in Arkansas. We started five years ago with zero Adventists in a town of 12,000 people. 
And now there are average attendees of about 50 people attending now. And, and a lot of them are not yet Adventist, but they're interested in their coming. And a lot of them are children. And what I've observed is an incredible development that if a heretic comes, do you know what I mean by heretic? I mean someone with a false idea. I'm going to try to pick one for an example and just hope there isn't anyone here that advocates this. If there is, I didn't pick it because you're here. I truly didn't know. <laughs> but for example, the, the sacred name idea, that the way we should refer to God and to the Father and to Jesus is only with the names Yeshua and Yahweh. That idea. You know, if that man comes and presents it to people who've been Adventists for 15 or 20 years, some of them are going to be persuaded by it. I've seen that happen several times. And so it feels to me like if he comes and presents it to these brand new, just learning Adventists, that they're just going to be blown over by it. And the encouraging fact that I've learned is it isn't so that people who are willing to do whatever God says know of the doctrine whether someone speaks of God or whether he doesn't. Consecration has a whole lot to do with comprehension of what is true. Said another way this trick, it will never work while you're deciding that you really wish that you, for example, could dance, that if you study out dancing that you're going to come to the right conclusion. Did that make any sense to what I just said? Let me try it again. I'll use my own, my own context. I work in an academy where the students aren't allowed to date. I think that's a good rule for academies, and I work at one like that. And so it happens repeatedly that, that someone will suddenly take a liking to someone else, and when they study out the topic, they conclude that what they're doing is right. Do you see that in John 7, 17? Well, what's the condition of understanding correctly? It's being willing to do what he says. And it's just a very bad idea for you while you're holding on to something you think is probably wrong to study it out before you give it up. Better give it up first and then study it out. Because while you're holding on to it, you're going to be blinded by that very... Yeah, that, and that's very dangerous. The trick I'm talking about here, though, is the I can't understand it trick. Do you realize that in the last 160 years that the population of the earth has gone up by almost 600%? But the population of the demons has gone up by zero percent. I hope that that's good news to you when you think that through. <laughs> I hope when you think that, it has. And while the devil has used this method for millennia, it's become even more critical for him to use it today. He doesn't have, as it were, the manpower to keep everyone covered. 
Instead, he tries to lead most of us to feel like our intellects are inferior. And by leading most of us to feel like our intellects are inferior, then he leads us to put confidence in someone who we feel like their intellect is more above ours. They can comprehend the things, and we can't, so we'll submit our judgment to them. And I hope you never allow yourself to do like that, because that's very mean to whoever you set your confidence in. I mean that the devil really puts a lot of focus right there to delude him, knowing that taking him down is an easy way to get an entire crowd. Do you understand what I'm saying? That the only way to be kind to people who are studious is to not believe them just because they say something is so. You're going to have to believe that if any man will do his will, if what? If any man Though a fool, even a wayfaring man, will know which way. I mean, it's up to you to believe that if God can teach the eagles to find their prey, he can teach you how to find the truth in his word, not because your intellect is so strong, but because he is such a gifted teacher. And when you put your confidence in his ability, then you can, yeah, you just rob the devil of one of his most efficient delusions. It's the, I can't understand these things trick. Turn to me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18. And we're looking at verse 2. A fool has no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover, what's it say? Itself. So I've already met lots of people who talked about finding themselves. And I just want you to listen carefully and try to understand why finding yourself never has been a good idea. (laughs) It's the same reason why examining a snowflake and then your finger isn't a good idea. What's wrong with with examining a snowflake on the end of your finger? That's right. The the way that you're examining the snowflake changes the snowflake. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? And this is what Proverbs communicates along with the rest of the Bible. By beholding, you know this phrase, of course, we become... And so the devil has tried to pull the most silly of tricks on us, and it's incredible how we fall for it. When we try to discover ourselves, we're... We're examining something. Not only, not only is that something defective, but it's dynamic. Do you know the word dynamic, what it means? It's changing, right? But we're changing. And the very process of looking for ourselves makes us worse. And then, when we're at, then we've changed. And then we find ourselves again, and it makes us worse. But by then, we've changed. I don't know if you understand what I'm communicating. The idea of looking for ourselves is just a poor one, logically. Because looking at self messes. Yeah, that's right. I couldn't figure out the word after messes that would make good English, but you got the idea. Messes up self. I'm not sure that's even proper English. Um, So this idea, this is how it's worded by most Adventist young people and Adventist people. It's the, this is how I am trick. 
you must never conclude that your defects are you. Your defects aren't a permanent part of you. Your temper, for example, your temptation, your, your besetting sins, those problems, and this is so, the older you get, the more this trick sets in. So I'm speaking right now even to old people especially. You can't afford to conclude that your defects are going to stick with you. If you conclude it, they will, and that doesn't work out. What I'm saying is that instead of finding self, we want to spend our time focusing on our Savior. And when we have him in view, self changes for the better. And just doing that exercise, yeah, self won't be the same as it was. Do you see how that makes finding self a vain activity? What you're really doing is finding something that won't even be that way in the future. Point nine. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter 4, and we're looking at verse 12. The Bible says, For the word of God is quick, which you should just scratch that out and put alive unless you already know that that's what quick means. The word of God is alive, is what that means, and powerful. And I'm going to leave the rest of the verse for you and say the trick. I call this the, that is how they are trick. I remember I was at the Review and Herald. I worked there for a few years. That's where the school was from 96 to 99. And I was talking to a man there in the library And he had observed that people who have a certain theological belief, which is one I happen to share, are skinny. And there was no connection physiologically between the belief and that observation. This belief had nothing to do with health, for example, at all. And this was his conclusion, that the reason that those people believe like that is because they don't have the kind of temptations that other people have. And I would just like to, have you ever heard reasoning along the same line? That's the way they are. That's the way he is. The devil would like to belittle the word of God by saying that when it changes men's lives for the better, that it simply brings them closer to their natural inclinations. That the reason that this class become conservative or this class become liberal is because of a bent that is in them. And that is such an insult to this book. As if this book doesn't change lives or as if this book changes lives in opposite directions, some that way and some this way. The word of God is alive. 
and powerful. It changes people. And don't let the devil tell you that the reason people have a certain set of values is just because they're inclined that direction. It's possible that someone is inclined to fanaticism, but you had better check the data before you figure it's just their inclination. This is the only way we're ever going to know if it's true. Do you understand what these tricks have in common? The devil wants us to skip looking at the data for ourselves so that he can manipulate us into thinking about the way that he thinks. The last point tonight, and then I'm going to review all of these and we'll close. I don't have a scripture for it, but I think it's, it's so logical that I think you can just see that it's true. I'd like you to picture for a minute a scale here, a balance type scale. I'd like you to picture that there are three rocks on this side, all about the same size, and that over here are a pile of 10 rocks, all about the same size. So you've got 13 rocks, all about equal size. Can you sort of picture it so far? I'd like you to understand If I put one of these rocks on the scale, it's going to be heavy on the three side. Can you sort of see that? And if I take that rock off and put another one on, it's going to stay heavy on that side. And I could put all ten rocks on like that, and the three side would stay down the entire time. And then if I was a fool, I could say that this side is heavier than these ten rocks. But that wouldn't make any sense at all, would it? But I'm just trying to illustrate for you about the way that people often handle religious reasons, biblical reasons for data. I call this the I see where you are going trick. I mean that if you give Bible Bible studies to someone, for example, on the Sabbath, this will work this way you might have 15 good arguments for the Sabbath. But they have Colossians 2.14 and 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 16.2. Yes, they have their three arguments, right? And you have your 20. If all the arguments could be on the table at one time, wouldn't it be easy to see what the truth is? If all the arguments were there, you could see it. But in the mind of the poor person that you're talking to, there never are 23 arguments on the table. There are always four arguments on the table. Your one argument plus his three arguments. And at every step, his three arguments in his own mind outweigh your one argument. It's easy to see it when someone else is having the problem. But it's a very common way the devil works to trick us. If you're receiving a Bible study or a presentation or a study that you can tell from the beginning is likely to say that you're wrong about how you live your life. I mean, any which way that you live your life you should know that you have quite a natural bent to self-defense. We don't really want to change. And the devil's trick is to come to me in that vulnerable situation and get me to evaluate the data at every step 
before, and as long as, I, as long as you can get me to evaluate the data at every step, I won't keep that data on the table in my mind, and I will feel justified for not changing my opinion. I only know one safe way to avoid being deluded this way, and that is to regularly postpone conclusions. You don't have to make up your decision before the data is down. You don't have to make your conclusion before you've had time to study. I mean, it's not even safe to do it. So, did you understand what I was trying to communicate, even though I didn't use a Bible text at all? It's just a normal, I mean, I could have pretended I used Bible text with the illustration about the Sabbath, but they didn't really teach what I said. They were just the illustration. To really find truth, we're going to have to use a process that's more time-consuming than what we're inclined to do. And then we can really know whether it's true. Okay, what I've said tonight, it's good for young people, but it's way too boring to keep the average young person's attention. Isn't that horrible? I mean, it's just what we need, but we hardly are qualified to take it in. So I'm going to try to say it all again now in about three minutes. And then if you are older and you memorized it or wrote it down or will go to that website, you can find a more successful way to get it into the minds of the people that need to hear it. The first trick is the baby and bathwater trick. That's to throw out a true idea because it's of association with a false idea. That second was the gospel doesn't work for me trick. It's because we don't understand it well, even though we think we do, we should just keep studying. Then there's that freedom trick. It's to feel like that God's ways keep us in bondage. We didn't even realize that the devil right now is on bondage on this earth and he's miserable. His ways are bondage. But why do we feel the bondage that the Bible calls a law of liberty? It's because we're in those gray areas pushing on the edges. And if we would back away to the freedom that belongs to the children of God, we could have the freedom we want. That forced one, that, that fourth trick was one about getting revenge the wrong way. Here's someone who tried to help me and he didn't do it well, so I get revenge on him by disobeying God and ruining myself. And that's the trick. We ought not to do it. That fourth point was the hypocrite trick. It's related to the, to the one of truth associated with falsehood. This is more like truth associated with false person. It's the same idea, and you shouldn't fall for it either way. Then there's the later trick. That is to postpone making moral decisions when you already know what's right. When the conviction is there and you've seen the data, you can't afford to put it off. I can't understand those things trick. You should know it's the devil who whispers into your mind that your intellect is too weak. He is afraid to have you connected directly to a teacher who is very successful. But the people you trust can't afford to have you trust them. It makes them target for terrible things. We want to go directly to God, and when we do, the devil is discomfited. Don't pity him. Then there is the this is how I am trick. Trying to find yourself is vain. Self is changing always. When you try to find it, it's getting worse. When you're trying to find Jesus, it's getting better. You can't locate a moving object. 
better to put our attention somewhere where self will be improving and never to conclude that our defects can't be changed. They are always a temporary part of our experience. Then there was the that is how they are trick. To conclude that your parents or your elders or people you know, that the reason they have those values is because they're just that kind of person. Don't do that. Don't so belittle God's counsels, the testimonies, this Bible, as to indicate they don't really push people in the same direction with the same information. You know, they do. People that differ widely in disposition come to the same conclusion when they base their conclusions on the same data. Then there is that I see where you are going trick. When your lifestyle is being attacked, it will require a great deal of self-control to postpone your, dis- your conclusion until you've seen the data. But if you love truth, it's worth it to know what's right, what's best. Are we ignorant of his devices? We shouldn't be. What was that first one we started with in 1 Corinthians? Don't combine our discipline with coldness. There are just so many common tricks the devil uses, and if we can pull the plugs on these, his power in our church will be weakened, and God's power will begin to show like it hasn't shown before. Let's bow our heads for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would take the power in your holy Bible and that you would use it to inoculate us against the typical tricks the devil uses, that we could be spared from those and be able to walk in the light. I thank you and I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before you go, there'll be a closing song and then perhaps an announcement or so.